All right. I feel like it's that time where like we really get to know personalities because like I can tell like half of y'all are getting hyped up and then the other half like me are about to fall asleep. So Oh, I should have I should have gotten that earlier. But if I do it now, I won't be able to sleep tonight. But but anyway, this is worth it because we get to talk about Jesus. So we got to stay awake for this, right? Um, okay, I'm going to pray for us before we get started. So go with me in prayer. Father, you are good like we have seen today. And we thank you for your love and your kindness to us. We thank you for your faithfulness to your promises. We thank you for um, your covenants that show us your steadfastness and your um, your desire to redeem us. God, we know that this is for your glory, for the good of your people. And Lord, as we study about your son tonight, Jesus, we pray that he would be lifted up and magnified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So have you guys ever watched a movie or maybe read a book and you got to a really good part in the, in the story and you're like, I just want it to end right here. But then, like, it keeps going, and you're kind of like, oh, that was disappointing at the end. Have you ever been like that? I have to. Um, well, it kind of seems like that's what Israel does to their own story. <laughs> they always seem intent on disrupting their happy ending. Last session, we ended on a high note. Moses was um, interceding for the people of Israel. And after the golden calf incident, the Lord still agreed to be their God, to continue um, to go with them to the promised land. And his presence was um, going to remain with them in the form of the fire and the cloud. Moses received instruction from the Lord, and then eventually a tabernacle was built and a priesthood was set up so that their daily duties could um, include offering sacrifices and overseeing the festivals and the offerings for the people. The intent of this priesthood was that they would be mediators, like we had already talked about, between God and the people of Israel so that his presence could still abide there with them. And they were responsible for ensuring that this adherence to the covenant and its stipulations were continued. In some ways, it was like Eden 2.0. It was supposed to be. And although God's presence was with them in a limited sense, they had the opportunity to multiply, to have dominion over the earth, to be a nation that was a light to other nations. However, after they entered the promised land, not to mention all the grumbling that they did along the way, Israel starts to do what was right in their own eyes, the book of Judges tells us. And although God was their king, they wanted a human king. So God gave them one. He appointed, um, he allowed them to anoint Saul as their king. And then when Saul disobeyed, God um, appointed a king of his own choosing, which was David, King David. So this is our next mile marker that we're going to look at in our biblical story. We've made it all the way from creation from, to the fall and then these redemptive moments where God makes covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses and Israel, and now he makes a covenant with King David. So I'm going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 9 through 16. And this is the covenant that is made. I'm going to let you guys look at it on the screen as well because it's a longer text. And then see how many references you can find that refer to previous covenants, as I read. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your, all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, 
like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God came to David, who was already a part of his covenant community, Israel. So he's already working within these existing covenants. And he promised David that there would be a name or someone from his, oh, I'm sorry, someone on, y'all, y'all can tell that I'm tired. Someone um, in his line would sit on an eternal throne forever. So upon David's death, his son Solomon began to reign. And Solomon, it looked like, was the fulfillment of this promise. But Solomon led the people astray. And after Solomon's death, the throne became contested and the kingdom was split into two. So on this map, there's um, the divided kingdom. If you can see in the green there, that's Israel in the north. And then Judah was in the south. So all the other tribes um, besides Judah kind of consolidated in Israel in the north. In the northern kingdom, they were loyal to one line of kings that was not part of or not from David's offspring. But then Judah stayed committed to a king from the line of David. However, neither kingdom lived up to their calling. Rather than, obeying, rather than obeying the covenant stipulations of the, from the law of Moses, the people began to use the grace of the sacrificial system as a license to sin. Then God raised up messengers to call them back to repentance. Those messengers were called prophets. But then even in the midst of the prophecies that God was sending, the people still disobeyed. And so Assyria came, a nation that eventually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And about a century and a half later, a kingdom called Babylon came. And they took, and they, um, took into exile the people of Judah. So what would, God, what would become of God's people? And how will he dwell with them again? That's the question we've been asking. How will God dwell with his people? And what will he do to fix their rebellion? It's against this backdrop that the prophet Jeremiah spoke from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is my covenant that I will make with them, the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, in the exile of darkness, the people were offered a ray of hope. God was going to remove their sin and fulfill, the, fulfill his promise by establishing this new covenant. And this new covenant is what points us to Jesus. It enabled the former covenant blessings to come to pass because this time God was going to change the hearts of the people. The northern kingdom never actually returned, but the southern kingdom of Judah was eventually able to return, and they were able to piece together a semblance of the temple that God's presence used to dwell in. But it would be centuries later before John wrote the text that's going to be our primary text for tonight. We're going to look at John chapter 1, and we're going to read what he has to say about a Jewish man from the line of David named Jesus that he calls the Word. Could someone read for me um, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18? Thank you. Um, so just to clarify, when he talks about John in verse 6, he's talking about John the Baptist. So just, it's not the same John there. But before we dive into the actual text, let's, again, remember the two questions that we're trying to answer. How is God going to dwell with his people? And how is the human problem of rebellion going to be resolved? So to answer this, we got to first answer the question that John is answering. He's asking, who is the word? John begins his prologue with an allusion back to creation. He begins with the same phrase as Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. If you were a Jew and you heard this statement, you might expect the sentence to be completed, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John instead completes his sentence as, in the beginning was the word. He's not denying that God created the world, but he is establishing a claim of pre-existence for the Word. Before the world was created, the Word was both with God and he was God. He is both distinct from God, yet he shares the same essence as God. This is the same God who Israel would have said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So how can God be one if the Word was both with God and he was God? Well, John doesn't necessarily give us a logical explanation of the Trinity here, but he does affirm this union, and he says that all things were made through him. He's affirming both the oneness and the foundation of the triuneness of God. John also uses the Greek word logos for the term word here. So if he's speaking to a Jewish and a Greek audience, we've already talked about what the Jewish audience would be, what connections they would be making. The Greek audience might recognized the Logos as a Greek philosophical term that meant this ultimate impersonal guiding force in the world. It's kind of like what that would mean. But John is saying it's not that there's this impersonal principle guiding the world. There's a person, and he's the Word. The person called the Word is to be understood as the God of Israel, the one who made heavens and the heavens and the earth. So knowing how John understands the Word allows us to upload what we know about God from the Old Testament into the Word in the New Testament. This is no ordinary person. The Word of God, according to verse 4, possesses the life that was given to all of creation. He was the source of the very first let there be in Genesis. 
And he is the source of life for every one of us in this room. The new covenant that Israel and the world is waiting on is, has come to pass, and they need a life giver. Ezekiel 36 tells us that in this new covenant, God will give you a new heart and a new spirit. He will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So they needed the word, the one in whom is life itself, to do this, and we need him too. The life that the word offers is called the light of men. In the Bible and even in our context, context when we talk about light it's usually a positive thing so Genesis 4 4 says and God saw that the light was good Psalm 119 105 says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path Isaiah 9 2 says the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light light is the source of life it's the way we see it's the only way to defeat the dark and the Bible speaks of darkness in many ways as well Apart from God's creative power, the world was dark and empty. The people of Isaiah, in, in Isaiah's time, they were walking in darkness, like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Jesus is the light. He is the way of truth. He's the one who can re remove the blinders from our eyes. And he's the word who gives us life. In a fallen world, we are all too familiar with the darkness. All we have to do is turn on the news and we can see the way humans destroy one another. We can see the way natural disasters defile God's good world. And we can feel it in our relationships that are marked by strife and suffering and division. And we know the darkness in systems of injustice where the innocent are taken advantage of and those in power are protected. We know darkness from the shadows that are cast onto us from the continuing effects of sin that have just snowballed out of control. Sometimes it's not even anything to do with our personal sin, but things like disease, depression, anxiety, trauma, pain, fear, and shame, just to name a few. But as much as it hurts to admit it, we also know the darkness from inside us. In our own hearts, we can ignore the ways of God and we can harbor sin. We contribute to the broken systems of our world, our own broken relationships. And like Adam and Eve, we try to hide ourselves from the one who can see it all. We know the darkness. But there is a light that shines in the darkness. And there is not one shadow that this light cannot cast out. Just as there is no amount of darkness that can extinguish the light, there is no amount of curse or sin or sickness or evil in the world that the word of God cannot overcome. He is the light of the world, the life that is the light of mankind. John 1 verse 4 tells us that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Like a good father who is committed to loving and protecting his children, God offers the same type of relationship to anyone who believes in the word that he has sent. He will be our light in our life. So after John introduces us to this word, he says in verse 9, This true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So like Moses told the people to get ready because the presence of God was coming on Mount Sinai, John is preparing us for the creator word to come into his creation. 
So we're in the part of the prologue where if I was reading a book to my kids, I would say, and guess what happens next? Verse 14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, who is God, became flesh. God's presence didn't just come down on Mount Sinai in, a cloud, in the cloud and in the fire again. Instead, He became one of us. He became a human being. And He was the only human being since Adam and Eve that has not been born into the darkness, with the darkness inside Him. He dwelt with us, or tabernacled among us, as some commentators say. He brings his light into the darkness of God's good but broken world. If we thought the idea of a triune God was hard to comprehend, John's now asking us to comprehend or at least to acknowledge that the God who is the creator of the world actually is, has become human. 100% God, 100% man. Why? Why does he do this? The text tells us in verses 16 through 18, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The law from Moses was good, but it wasn't enough. And we know this because we know the story of Israel, and we also know our story. The law is good, but we couldn't keep the law the way that God's perfection required. And for God to dwell with his people again, the sin problem had to be fixed. His holiness demands it. So what does God do? He doesn't leave us in the darkness, but he sends the light and the life in the person of Jesus Christ. John finally gives the word a name, and he identifies him as a Jew from the line of David who lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death, and he rose again to eternal life so that we could share in his benefits. Through him, we receive grace and truth. Moses saw God in part. Right after God promised Moses that his, his presence would go with them, Moses asked to see God's glory. And that's where the verse that we read last time from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 comes from, where the Lord passed before him and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The character of God is revealed as one who is faithful to his covenant promises. He desires to be in relationship with his people. And to do that, he has to deal with sin, either by providing a means of forgiveness or through the just consequence of death. What Moses knew in part, Jesus made known in full. Our standard now is not the law, but the person of Christ. God raised the bar in Jesus, but then he offers him to us as a gift. John tells us that later in chapter 3, starting in verse 16, where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For anyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the tension from that Exodus verse that we talked about last time between the mercy of God and the judgment of God towards sinners is resolved through the Son of God. The Son is the offspring of, of Abraham that's going to bless the nations. He is the new Israel who has fulfilled the entire law. He is the perfect mediator for all of humanity. The Word is the Son of David that's going to sit on the throne forever. He is the one that the prophets announced would have to come and suffer for his people for them to be restored and to bring them back from exile. In Jesus, the Word, our sins are forgiven, or else we remain under judgment for loving the darkness more than the light. So all of the covenant promises point forward to the new covenant that's ratified in the coming of the word. So they're all pointing forward to Jesus. God resolved the problem of human rebellion by shining the light of Jesus into the dark. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus resolves this problem by dying in the place of sinners and offering forgiveness to all who believe. He is the standard that will be used in the future judgment. And the question is, for us, do we love the light or the darkness? It's no secret that there is still darkness in the world. And it's no secret that the resurrected Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. So if Jesus was the solution for dwelling with his people and solving human rebellion, you may be asking some questions. Like, why did he leave us? Why do people who love Jesus still experience sin and its effects? How can we be sure that the solution really worked? Our final session is going to answer some of these questions. And we're going to learn about the helper that Jesus said he would send and who would come after him. But for now, those of us who love the light, who love Jesus, can take great comfort in these truths. That the God who made us is determined to rescue us. And the light of God is stronger than any darkness we face, in us or around us. God sent Jesus the word so he could dwell with us and we with him, always and forever, world without end.